0: Capital Market Insights from ICMA. So good day, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to our monthly uh, market update uh, podcast. Like every month, I'm joined by Bob Parker, chairman of ICMA Asset Management and Investor Council. Bob, thanks for being with us again uh, today. Uh, We've planned to discuss three main topics, the first one being the Chinese uh, equity sell-off. The second topic of the month is the pause uh, of uh, the reflation trade. And uh, lastly, we'll, uh, we'll discuss uh, central bank policies and uh, upcoming decision uh, on that front. So uh, with that, let's dive into the first topic. And it's still, as we speak, uh, a very current news. What's going on with uh, Chinese equities uh, market? And why is such a, a big sell-off, Bob? Well, I think,
1: first of all, to quantify it. And obviously, you know, market movements change quite significantly from day to day. But as we talk, if we look at you know, the tech-heavy Chinese equity market index the CSI 300 over the last month that is down by close to 10 percent and you know year to date the two main Chinese equity markets the CSI 300 and then also the Shanghai composite obviously are one of the few areas in the global equity markets which have generated negative returns and I think investors really are focusing on sort of three areas which have caused concern. And the first area is increased regulation of certain sectors and equity markets for Chinese companies. And this increased regulation started earlier in the year when all our participants in this podcast will know that the IPO of Ant Financial, which was proposed in Hong Kong, because of increased regulation on Ant Financial, That IPO was pulled and there was a wave of increased regulation um, of the Chinese fintech sector. And the rationale behind that increased regulation was that I think the authorities quite rightly were concerned about consumer lending activities by the fintech companies and also the distribution in the retail market of investment management products and particularly investment management products which were offering guarantees. So the level of risk was perceived by the regulatory authorities to be of concern. Therefore, you had increased regulation on fintech. And I think, you know, one also has to look at the loss of market share in the Chinese uh, consumer sector, financial consumer sector, between the banks and the fintech companies. And, you know, I think this is certainly there was quite intense lobbying from the banks that they felt that they were being unfairly regulated and they thought um, that regulation on fintech companies was too loose um, and therefore, you know, we've had that change in regulation on fintech. I think that was, you know, the first aspect of increased regulation. The second aspect um, is that uh, there has been increased regulation on Chinese companies which have issued shares and done uh, initial public offerings um, on the New York exchanges. Um, And therefore, the Chinese authorities want to try and pull back uh, issuing activity either to Hong Kong or Shanghai. So that's been the second aspect of regulation. I think the, the third aspect has been increased regulation on what I call data sensitive or data heavy companies, that is companies which hold and accumulate large volumes of personal data. And you know, an example of regulation there was on the transport sector, the Chinese equivalent of Uber, which is called Didi, So increased regulation there and you know, the Chinese regulators wanting uh, to control the use of data that companies which are data sensitive or data heavy have accumulated. And then more recently, and this has been a catalyst in triggering the latest decline in the Chinese equity markets, has been increased regulation on certain areas of the education sector. And so these are companies which offer online education. And they have been, you know, the companies largely have been quoted on the New York exchanges. And there, the Chinese authorities uh, want to increase regulation on the profitability of those companies. So obviously their share prices have fallen quite significantly. So to come back to your question, um, the first aspect of investor concern has been to what extent increased regulation, whether it be fintech, education, data-sensitive companies, to what extent that will have a negative economic effect on the Chinese economy. I think concern number two um, is in the Chinese corporate bond market, where You know, if one looks at corporate defaults this year, they are up quite sharply relative to last year, and, you know, over 50% of debt restructurings actually is now in the state-owned enterprise sector. So, you know, government-backed or government-owned enterprises, and particularly also enterprises owned by regional and local authorities. Uh, There is a lot of investor focus at present on three areas of the corporate debt market. Uh, The first is the the Evergrande company, which is uh, China's most indebted company. Um, Its offshore bonds in dollars recently have been trading at less than 50 cents on the dollar. There are reports that their bank lines have become difficult, i.e. liquidity to the company from the banks has been tightened up. And there is a lot of evidence that the high level of leverage in Evergrande is going to lead to some form of restructuring. And obviously, the Chinese authorities are following this very closely. I think, ideally, they would like to encourage a debt restructuring without state aid. The second one is also another heavily indebted company called Suning. And I think there, there will be asset disposals. Uh, again, I think without state aid, although there will be state intervention to organize a sort of fairly smooth debt restructuring. And then the third one that investors are looking at is the asset management company, which used to be sort of known as the Chinese bad bank called Huarong. And that is an asset management business which took over a lot of underperforming assets in the shadow banking sector. And, you know, again, I think a, a, some form of re- debt restructuring is inevitable there. Because it is owned by the Chinese Ministry of Finance, the Huarong uh, restructuring, I think, will be very sensitive. Indeed, the Chinese authorities probably will provide some state aid, some form of intervention. Uh, But again, you know, the situation of delinquencies and default in the corporate bond market is obviously a concern for investors. So that's sort of factor number two. Factor number three is, you know, the subject of geopolitical risk. And we do have quite difficult discussions between America and China at present on trying to reboot uh, the trade negotiations. Um, you know, the evidence available is that those negotiations are not uh, progressing smoothly. Having said that, the fact that the US and China are at least talking, I think, does diffuse geopolitical risks. But, you know, there are a raft of geopolitical problems, and, you know, geopolitical risk um, obviously discourages investor risk-taking. Now, having said that, so those those, those three negative factors, regulation, geopolitical risk the corporate bond market having said that the data out of the Chinese economy so far actually looks reasonably good and you know for the second half of this year year-on-year GDP growth is likely to be six to seven percent export growth remains reasonably robust consumer spending is picking up and investment spending is picking up so you know the Chinese government, Uh, forecast for growth or the objective for growth is six percent plus growth this year. Um, I think that will be easily achieved. I do think that we're going to have some reset in the Chinese equity markets. Um, And certainly, I think the fintech sector probably does continue to underperform for some time. But with a price earnings ratio of around 15%, uh, you know the Chinese equity market is reasonably priced. And within that, there are certain sectors such as financials and industrials um, and also consumer staples where you know price earnings ratios are close to 10 or below 10. So there are areas of the market which are well supported. So we're going through what I regard as an inevitable correction. That will probably continue for some time. But after the big falls we have seen, I think we should start to see some support for the Chinese equity markets over the next month. So I think in conclusion, I would say that I think that the major fall is probably behind
0: us. Do you have any idea of uh, institutional investors, investors generally speaking exposure? Do you think they've reduced enough their exposure? Um, what, what's the attitude uh, so far? Do we, do we have institutional investors still being too much exposed to those risks you described?
1: Well, obviously, a large part of foreign institutional investment in China is actually via private equity. And there, you know, the private equity investors are in China very much for the long term. So I think that, you know, there I don't think you're going to see heavy selling from private equity investors where already you have seen quite significant selling has been in the ETF market and where, you know, ETFs linked to Chinese indices. So, you know, there it's inevitable that any market downturn, you are going to see the most liquid assets being sold uh, the most quickly. And that has certainly been the case um, in this Chinese market sell-off. So there has been pressure on ETF sales. I think a large part of that selling probably is, as I mentioned, is now probably behind us. That's occurred over the last month or, or two, and certainly that selling pressure has accelerated more recently. I think for other investors, mainly sort of institutional, active, actively managed portfolios, I think there has been a risk reduction on China over the last month. And, you know, if the question is, Are there very large, leveraged, long positions in the Chinese market? That probably was the case at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. It is, I think, less so the case at the moment. So, you know, that's why I think the contagion risk from this downturn in the Chinese market is probably fairly limited. And that's why, you know, so far over the last week, the selling pressure in China has largely been confined to China and some markets which are highly correlated with China. And one I would mention, of course, is Germany and the relationship between you know, German manufacturing and the Chinese economy is very strong indeed. And whenever we've seen falls in the, uh, in the Chinese markets, that has been followed by falls in in the DAX. So that's one area where there is some contagion. And uh, but elsewhere, you know, is there going to be contagion resulting in sharp falls in markets like the S&P or Latin American markets? I think probably not.
0: If anything, it may have helped the U.S. tech sector, no? Um, Well, you could
1: argue yes, Um, and, You know, there is this big discussion as to whether there will be increased investment in the tech sector in America. And there is the use of the word, which I don't particularly like, which is re-onshoring. And what that means in English is, you know, whether it's tech companies or, you know, other companies moving manufacturing operations from countries like China back to the United States. Um, and, you know, there is clear evidence of that happening uh, in, in the tech sector. Um, and it's quite interesting if you use the example um, of one company, Apple. Apple is an American company. Its uh, its main production is in China. And those production facilities in China are actually largely owned and managed by a Taiwanese company. So could actually argue that Apple is Chinese-Taiwanese-American, but... You know, I think one thing to watch is actually whether operations by companies like Apple uh, will increasingly be switched back to the states, and I think there will be um, a clear trend there.
0: What a great segue to talk about inflation and the, uh, re- re- reflation. So, what one thing that was surprising that we already started to see a couple months ago, that there was a, there was a pause on the uh, yield going up, and it seems that you know, at least this month, they've gone down quite quite sh- uh, sharply. What's the reason for that? We're supposed to be in a refl- reflation context. Uh, so it's hard to understand wh- what are the factors uh, explaining this uh, particular phenomenon in the short term.
1: Well, I think, no, first of all, just to quantify it. Um, in March, 10-year US Treasury yields were close to 1.8%. 10-year Bund yields were close to minus 10 basis points. And we saw ten-year Japanese government bond yields, you know, at around plus 15 basis points. You know, as we talk, ten-year U.S. Treasury yields have come down to close to 1.2 percent. So, you know, a rally, a bond market rally of 50 to 60 basis points, and you know, Bund yields, ten-year bond yields, you know, have moved to minus 40, minus 45 basis points, and JGB yields are back to uh, to close to zero. So. I think two themes. You know, theme number one is that we have had this bond market rally, and you know, theme number two is that all bond markets have been highly correlated. So the move in U.S. Treasuries has seen, you know, likewise rallies in European markets and, uh, and in Asian uh, bond markets. Um, and coming back to our earlier discussion on China, you know, we've seen you know government bond yields there, ten-year government bond yields. Move back down less than 3%, whereas back in March, you know, they were trading up at 3.3%, 3.35%. So this move in bond markets has been global. It's not just a US issue. Um, it also means that real yields have become you know, more negative. And you know, if, for example, we look at the United States, the latest uh, consumer price figures show that year-on-year inflation is 5.4%. And therefore, if you just take the simple calculation of the CPI minus the bond yield, we've got a negative real yield on 10-year US Treasuries of above 4%. So by historic standards, that is exceptionally high. Less severe in uh, Europe and Asia, but even so, there has been this trend towards real yields becoming more negative. So you have to ask the question, well, what's going on? And uh, I think really so one has to look at it two ways. The first uh, is that there are a number of technical factors. Now, let's not forget uh, that the Federal Reserve is still buying 120 billion US dollars worth of US treasuries and mortgage-backed securities every month. And although there is a lot of speculation that they will taper their quantitative easing, um, it's going to be a very slow process. So, you know, that, that 120 is there as a backstop. I think the second technical factor um, is that the U.S. Treasury has been very prudent, despite the high level of the budget deficit, in managing its cash flows. So, you know, obviously the bankers of the U.S. Treasury is the Federal Reserve, and U.S. Treasury balances at the Federal Reserve are near a record high, and that means That there is less pressure on them, at least in the short term, uh, to issue new issues of US Treasuries, because they've got that very strong bank balance. So we've got the Fed buying and, you know, less issuance by the US Treasury. Um, And I think another factor, because of that less issuance of US Treasuries, obviously, you know, US Treasury availability is very important for the repo market. Uh, And there are a lot of reports... Uh, that there is actually a, a, a shortage of collateral of US treasuries in the repo market. So uh, that, again, has been a factor in depressing yields. I think, you know, in Europe, let's not forget um, that the ECB is currently making bond purchases or asset purchases um, of 80 billion euros per month. And you know, there's a reasonable chance that in you know August, September, that in fact the ECP may actually increase the amount of asset purchases. So again, that is a factor driving yields down. So those are the technical factors. Then if we look at the fundamental factors, if you look at investor surveys, yes, they are concerned about you know the rise in inflation and certainly the inflation numbers globally over the last two months have seen quite a significant acceleration but i think investors are also likewise concerned about the high valuation levels that we are seeing in most equity markets so what we've got uh, if you look at investor surveys is actually a classic barbell whereby investors don't want to miss out on the potential further rise in global equity markets. But on the other hand, they want to hedge their risks. And the way they're hedging their risks is going into bond markets. So there is that increased hedging and there is those barbell positions. Um, I think linked into that is also what's happening in pension fund markets and you know a lot of pension fund markets have natural rebalancing so in balanced accounts and particularly in pensions which are these sort of target maturity accounts as equity markets rise then those pension funds automatically rebalance taking profits on equities and moving the money back into bond markets. So in the pension fund market, you see those flows of profit taking um, in equity markets. Is inflation going to come down? Is growth going to slow? Those are the two very fundamental questions coming back to your question on reflation. And, you know, the answer is, yes, you know, inflation is, I think, going to moderate over the next six months to one year. Um, And the reasons why is, first of all, base effects. And, you know, if we go back one year, obviously there was the the risk of deflation. And what we're seeing at the moment is year-on-year figures are, partly driven by the very low levels of inflation or deflation even that we had the one year ago. Base effects will obviously unwind over time. I think linked into that also is the commodity prices are now stabilising. So oil over the last uh, 15 months has risen dramatically, Brent up from $20 a barrel to over $70 a barrel. It now looks likely that energy prices and industrial metals And actually soft commodities such as corn, after their dramatic rises, are now stabilising. So that takes some of the heat out of inflation. And then the distortions that we have had, whether it be in labour markets or in supply chains, which have been a factor driving inflation higher, uh, I think those distortions will gradually ease off over the next six months. And where you have in Europe and the States labor market support programs maturing, in you know, for example, in the States in September, that takes the heat out of some of the upward pressure on wages and some of the, uh, the pressure in labor markets. Now, having said that, I think central bankers face a challenge because the decline in inflation is probably going to be painfully slow. So, for example, American inflation currently 5.4 percent know, by the end of this year Inflation may have only come down to 4% and uh, in the first half of next year down to uh, around 3% in contrast to the 2% target that the Federal Reserve has for inflation. Uh, likewise, in the UK, for example, the inflation rate has moved up above 2%. I think there's a very high probability in the near term it moves up to 4%. And then you know, only slowly comes down to 3% by the end of this year. And in Europe, I think that by the end of this year, inflation at 25 to 3% and only coming back down slightly under 2.5% in the first half of next year. So I think sort of above target inflation is here for some time. And that, I think, could be a challenge for central bank policy over the balance of this year and in the first half of 2022. On growth, the growth numbers, I think, will continue to look reasonably good. And, you know, although the US economy probably peaked in the second quarter, I think that you know, the Federal Reserve target of 7% growth this year will be achieved. In Europe, the ECB, I think, may be too pessimistic. And we are seeing, whether it's the purchasing manager's figures or, you know, the rise in consumption, we're seeing some very strong growth numbers out of Europe uh, at the moment, and those will continue for the rest of this year. So, you know, Eurozone growth probably close to 4.5% this year and holding at that level next year. So, you know, the growth rebound, I think, is still largely intact because of base effects. But you know, we're not going to see some of the very dramatic rises in year-on-year growth that we've seen in the last two to three months. But if one looks, for example, through to the first half of next year, US growth running at 4%, Eurozone growth running at 4 know, to 4.5%. I think one surprise could be the recovery in Japan. And Chinese growth, which we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, um, you know, continuing to run close to six percent. So the growth outlook, I'm still fairly optimistic on.
0: So how did the ECB justify uh, to a status quo when it comes to uh, pretty accommodative monetary policies last week, and uh, how does it compare with what the Fed could do? Uh- this week. Well, I think you've got a very
1: interesting divergence between the ECB and the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is very concerned about the impact of tapering quantitative easing on capital markets and with a contagion effect on the US economy. So they're going to move very slowly. But, you know, given the US growth and inflation numbers I described earlier, I think there is a very high probability that the Federal Reserve will start to reduce its quantitative easing in the fourth quarter of this year. And it will start in the mortgage-backed securities market. And there is a lot of discussion amongst Fed members as to whether the US housing market is overheating. And the answer is house prices are rising at 10%, plus latest figures actually show year-on-year increases of around 13%. So, you know, the case for actually making continued mortgage-backed securities purchases is a very weak one. So I think they start not by cutting US Treasury purchases, but by cutting purchases in the mortgage-backed securities market. And I think that will start in the fourth quarter of this year. So the Fed is slowly moving to tapering its quantitative easing. And it could well announce that, give guidance on it, when Jerome Powell gives his speech at the Jackson Hole Central Bankers meeting, which is at the end of August. And investors will watch that meeting very closely indeed. In terms of interest rate increases, I think you know increasingly expectations will be brought forward that US interest rates will start to rise from you know, abnormally low levels in the second half of next year. So I think guidance from the Fed is reasonably clear. In the case of the ECB, Mrs Lagarde, you know, last week said that uh, the ECB wants to be persistently accommodative. I think that there is this short-term concern at the ECB that the problems with COVID are still proving challenging. um, And that's certainly, if one looks at the data of new cases over the last month, is certainly uh, true. And you no, know, they're concerned at the ECB that any action in reducing bond purchases may have a negative effect on the Eurozone economy. And the view from the ECB is that inflation is not yet a problem. There is still significant capacity. The Eurozone economy is still recovering from the coronavirus shock. And therefore, You know, the very moderate monetary policy pursued has to continue for the time being. And I think, you know, translating that into English, I think that means that any discussion about reducing bond purchases is certainly going to be delayed until later in the year. So we may see some reduction in ECB bond purchases early in 2022, but certainly the guidance from the ECB at the moment is that it is way too premature to start tightening monetary policy. So that in turn means that we now have divergence between the Fed and the ECB. That has implications, obviously, for dollar-euro exchange rate, and you know certainly is supportive uh, for a further appreciation of the US dollar.
0: Maybe one last word before uh, we conclude. We can have surprises in August, and uh, it can be a uh we we witnessed some market volatility during this month. Do you foresee um, any um, concerns, any events, anything that we should be uh, worried about while enjoying our summer holiday, or uh, should we, we can go relax and, uh, and not worry this year?
1: If you look back at historic data over the last 30, 40 years, August has always been a volatile month, and in, in many cases, it has been a month where there have been market shocks so if one goes back to you know the late 1990s in 97 we had the asian sovereign debt crisis then in 98 we had the russian sovereign debt crisis and you know quite frequently you know we've we've had issues with market shocks now one can it's very difficult to forecast market shocks you could actually argue that you know what we're going through as we talk with this sell off in the chinese equity market you could actually argue that that is a mini shock but having said that you know what are the circumstances behind major market shocks first of all are there areas of extreme investor leverage? Are there extreme areas of borrowing, overborrowing? And you know, the answer to that in, in the past is whenever we've had sovereign debt crises, it's because sovereigns have overborrowed. And that was certainly the case with the Asian and the, and the Russian debt crises in the late 1990s. We discussed earlier on, you know, a number of areas in the Chinese corporate bond market, and most notably Evergrande, the real estate developer, and there obviously there is overborrowing. And I think you know, we will get some probably, as I mentioned earlier, inevitably some form of debt restructuring of those over-leveraged companies, which we discussed. Having said that, I think it will be done in a very controlled way, because you know, where we've had market shocks in the past is where there have been defaults, but where there has been number one contagion risk and also where those defaults have really proved challenging to regulators and central banks to control. So I would be surprised if there is major contagion risk from those debt restructurings. Elsewhere, I talked earlier on about the barbell position of investors. And, you know, clearly, you know, with that barbell position, that implies that actually investors are not aggressively over leveraged. And there is very significant surplus liquidity sitting on the sidelines. And one very good example of that surplus liquidity is actually the dry powder in the private equity industry. And that dry powder, money waiting to be invested, is at a historic high. So I think all of those factors suggest that we are in different circumstances compared to previous market shocks. Having said that, I think investors will watch very carefully you know, what's happening in the Chinese
0: corporate bond market. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you for the overview. And good to know that our summer might be uh, without any major trouble. But uh, who knows? So we'll uh, reconvene at the end of the month and uh, take uh, account of of the summer events. And I wish you all a very great summer and uh, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.